Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is the New Books and Literary Studies channel, and I am your host, Britt Edelin. And I'm here today with Mario Tello, a professor of classics, comparative literature, and critical theory at the University of California, Berkeley. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Archive Feelings, A Theory of Greek Tragedy, which is published by the Ohio State University Press. Welcome, Mario. Hi. Hi, Britt. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here today. Um, And before we get into talking about your book, I just want to ask you, um, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself um, as well as um, how this book project came to be? Yeah. So I am, uh, by training, a classicist. Uh, and uh, I started at UCLA as an assistant professor in 2008. Uh, but in a sense, I always felt a little constrained by the boundaries of my own discipline, which has been traditionally um, quite an anomaly in the humanities, in the sense that classics as a strong historicist orientation and also quite an anti-theoretical stance. And so I, for many years, I tried to find ways to overcome this discomfort and also open up the discipline to a more theoretically engaged look at the material. And this conservatism, which I was talking about, is due to the fact that Greek and Latin are languages that are very difficult to learn, that require a lot of technical competencies. So for a lot of people in the field, mastering the languages is enough. So when you then interpret the text, what you have to do is not more than going with the surface of the text or engaging with the historical context of the text that are object of textual analysis. Uh, I must say that this situation has changed to an extent in the sense that uh, the attention to philology, which was predominant in classics for a long time, has been replaced by more open approaches. Still, there is a kind of skepticism towards a non-strictly historical approach to classical literature. So this book is, I would say, my attempt not just to provide an alternative model to traditional ways of conceiving the aesthetics of tragedy, but it's also experimental in the sense that it tries to uh, weave multiple theoretical approaches and see how their connections emerge from the very formal texture 
of a text as complex as tragedy. That's so, no, please go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that totally comes across. Um, and you have um, a in your introduction, you have a a little a bit about your methodology, and I was I was so interested in um, what you bring up. You quote um, Werner Hamacher and his notion of philology, and you write that you bring up his idea of philology as an affective relationship with language, quote, a longing for language, for everything grasped by it and everything it could still touch. Um, and I, I was really interested in this, in that you're doing something so interesting in that you pay such close attention to the language, but you also really bring in these incredible theoretical approaches. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, I guess, this kind of intermingling between really close, ardent reading, you call it, and um, theoretical practices like deconstruction and queer theory. And I wonder if you could also talk a little bit maybe about how you see these certain theoretical approaches engaging with um, classics and the study of literature, um, of Greco-Roman literature. Thank you so much for that question. And uh... Let me go back to your point about uh, Werner Amaker and uh, the idea of philology as feeling. Um, re there, I really play on the etymology of philology, which is about philos, that is loving, loving language. But of course, you know, for us uh, who speak English, philology also evokes paretymologically, I would say, feeling, so that feeling and philos becomes a sort of paronomastic game of loving and intimacy and affect, so that becomes a kind of uh, icon of my method of reading, which is precisely about developing a kind of intimate connection with the text, and in that respect, I would say that my approach is uh, affect-oriented and so post-critical, and I'm going to come back to this issue in a moment. But on the other end, I don't want to abandon, you know, the kind of uh, complex, problematic uh, approach to literary language that is traditionally associated with what is called critique or criticism, and in particular, the kind of literary critique that is associated with deconstruction. So uh, as our you know, listeners know, there is a very important debate in the humanities on how to read, on the importance of reading. And I conceptualize my book as an exercise in reading. So the terms of the debate, maybe we can, you know, summarize it a little bit for our listeners, is are, um, shall we do surface reading or deep reading, uh, reparative reading or paranoid reading, that is to say, two modes of reading which have been theorized as a reflection of the very important work of Eve Sedwick. So when people talk about deep reading, or um, paranoid reading, they think in particular of psychoanalysis and deconstruction. 
That is to say, schools of thought which are perceived as looking at the text from a distance, from the distance of the psychanalyst who is there trying to understand what is hidden in the unconscious of the patient. So again, I'm not saying that this is what psychoanalysis or the construction really do, but in the debate on surface and uh, the surface reading and deep reading, that's how the construction has been usually characterized. That is a mode of critique that is sort of distant from the text, that is uh, uh, like a psychoanalyst, like a doctor. On the other hand, surface reading or reparative reading are seen as ways of recuperating a kind of intimacy with the text by just reading, which is one of the um, expressions used by people who advocate for reparative reading. And by just reading means not looking for what is hidden, not looking for what the text allegedly keeps under wraps, but just going with the text, going with reading with the grain as opposed to reading against the grain. So uh, what I do in the book is actually to try to bring together these two approaches and ardent reading, which is again another term used by Eve Sedwick, is precisely a way to go beyond the dichotomy by, on the one hand, endorsing entirely the the post-critical emphasis on affect, disposition, mood, and intimacy in the act of reading, but on the other hand, without losing the deconstructionist lesson that when we interpret, we necessarily look for conflicts at the level of signification. So uh, that's why I'm saying at a certain point in in the book that uh, uh, I try to take form, poetic form, not as a given, not as a discovery that is done in the very moment, that is concluded in the very moment in which one reads, but I try to bring form into being. So ardent reading is a form of visceral reading which allows us, you know, to see the complications that emerge, you know, in the very act of reading. And in the case specific of tragedy, which allows us to enact in the very act of reading the death-driven aesthetics that for me is at the center of tragedy. Uh, So, again, one of the central metaphors of the book is the loop. It's the spiral, which is an image of the death drive, as has been conceptualized in Lacanian theory, which, of course, is important for my own theorization of the aesthetics of tragedy, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. But the loop is also an image of my own process of reading, which I really conceive of as a kind of constant spiraling of effects of reading, where the difference between surface and depth is constantly problematized and complicated. 
So uh, now, now going back to your question about theory and close reading, well, I think that uh, um, postmodern theory, in particular Derrida and Lacan, who play a major role in my theorization, operate through a kind of close reading. They are great readers of text. I mean, Derrida is, uh, in a sense, a new critic. And in fact, the construction was extremely uh, indebted to new criticism. So I am trying in my own practice of reading to uh, reproduce that kind of experience of close reading, which seems to be essential, you know, to these theoretical models, to the writing of Derrida, of Lacan, but also Franciere, for example, who is also very important, you know, as a theoretical model in um, in my book. And then the last thing that I want to say is how do you bring all these people together, uh, which is a question that was raised by one of the readers of my book. For example, how do you bring together Deleuze and Lacan, right? Uh, Deleuze is well known for his aversion to psychoanalysis, right? Um, even if, of course, there is a book like Coldness and Cruelty, which is strongly psychoanalytic, and according to Lacan, that's the uh, most interesting theorization of masochism. That's what Lacan said. So uh, I really want to model an eclectic use of theory as opposed to belonging to one school and rejecting another. And that happens precisely by looking at the particularities and the complexities of form. Because all these theories, of all these theoretical schools, in a sense, provide us with instruments for defamiliarizing form, for not seeing poetic form as necessarily uh, constrained by the level of representation, but as something that actually defies, contests, problematizes representations all the time. Um, and I'm also trying to, to see how these school of thought can defamiliarize each other through their reciprocal their mutual interactions. And sometimes some surprising connections between, for example, Lacan and Deleuze or Deleuze and Derrida can emerge again through the practice of what I call ardent reading. That is an incredible explanation. Um, I really appreciate what you say about, um, I guess, this intimate approach towards literature. It reminds me um, of this interview that um, Gayatri Spivak has with um, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and she quotes um, her teacher, Paul DeMann, speaking to Frederick Jameson, saying that um, you can only deconstruct what you love because you have to be up inside of it. You have to, That's a real intimacy, um, and that critique comes from such an incredible closeness. Um, and yeah, it's, I, I think, and Vanna Hamaka is an incredible thinker for that. Um, and before we get too too far along and go into your book, I want to kind of set some terms um, that you you just brought up. Um, 
And I think it would be really helpful because it's so central to your to your project to talk about um, what the death drive is um, as as thought of by Freud and um, Lacan and how this relates to kind of the archival practice. Um, and you you talk about um, the your the topos of spiraling, and I think that the spiral, the movement from Forte da, the movement um, that kind of sets itself backwards. I think that would be really helpful to talk about the internal paradox of archive um, that it forgets and remembers, and how that relates to the death drive. Okay, so we can start with Freud, and then I'll say something about Lacan's reception of the death drive, and then the relationship between the death drive and the archive. Okay, so um, okay, so the idea of the death drive emerges in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, this very important essay of 1921. Even if I want to say. Uh, that uh, it was not Freud who came up with this idea. It was not a man, but it was a woman. That is Sabina Spielrein, who mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, a patient of Freud, and she was herself a psychanalyst. Uh, there are at least three movies about her and about her relationship, her very complicated relationship with Jung. And I also want to say that she died in concentration camp. So uh, in 1911, she published a paper on the death drive. And Freud was extremely skeptical. (laughs) And then later on, 10 years later, he basically uh, went back to this concept. And her name is actually mentioned in a footnote of beyond the pleasure principle. So the idea that Freud has is that basically life was a breach, a break, a moment. He imagines non-life as a kind of moment of bliss, right? It's a condition of bliss, which at a certain point gets interrupted by something, by an external force, which brings life into being. Okay, so in this respect, life is trauma, precisely because it's a wound. So when we are thrown into life, uh, there are two forces, you know, in uh, not just in the human, but in the, uh, not just in the human body, but in organic life, which are constantly in conflict with each other that is the l- apparently in conflict with each other, and I'll come back to this in a moment, the life instinct or the pleasure principle and the death drive. So the life instinct, what does it want to do? Not simply to preserve life, but more precisely, the life instinct wants to bring the body back to its origins, that is non-life, but at the right time, that is to say, according to the law, to the laws of biological decline. We will all we will all die at the right time. So the life instinct, you know, is vigilant, is there, trying to make sure that we're gonna go back to non-life, but only when the time comes. 
On the other hand, the death drive is a kind of rushing forward non-life. It's an attempt to rush that moment of return to the inanimate state. Okay? So, in this respect, uh, and this was uh, the great genius of Freud, we can say that the life instinct is subordinated to the death drive precisely because what the life instinct does is still to bring the the organic body close to death, close to the inanimate. There is only a difference in temporality. There is only a difference in the temporal texture of these two movements. One, the life instinct, slow, and the other one, you know, the death drive, a rush. So this is a great discovery precisely because uh, organic life really becomes what Derrida would call la vie mort, just one word, life-death. Life is not just life, but is constantly haunted by death, precisely because the life instinct is also, you know, dominated by an impetus toward a return to the inanimate. So this is Freud. Uh, Then Lacan goes back to uh, Freud's idea of the death drive, but reconceptualizes it because uh, Lacan, as we know, is very polemical against the biological or metabiological elements of Freud's theorization. As we know, Lacan is all about the signifier and the psychoanalysis is more abstract. So how does the death drive uh, figure in the Lacanian system? Uh, how does it, How is it positioned in relation to the symbolic, for example? Well, the death drive for Lacan is precisely a circling around the objet petit a. It's our own attempt to recapture what we can't recapture. So it's an image of uh, not so much of desire, which for Lacan is what never finds satisfaction, but it's an expression of a different impulse, which is finding satisfaction in no satisfaction. So it's this masochistic dynamic which is essential to life and which becomes a kind of resistance, against a kind of push against the symbolic. So in a sense, through the death drive, through this uh, circling around the unattainable, we kind of have an experience of what Lacan calls the real, that is what is situated outside symbolization. Uh, so in a sense, uh, Lacan's version of the death drive can be read as an interpretation, as you uh, suggested, of Freud's discussion of the fort and da in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. So that uh, discussion is extremely famous, but also very problematic, in the sense that there we perceive uh, Freud's discomfort. 
Is Freud saying that the point of the dev drive is about mastery, that is about the reaffirmation of the da, or not? I don't think we can really say that Freud concludes his discussion with a reaffirmation of mastery, or at least people who think that that is his conclusion have to admit that he's somehow uncomfortable with it. And so uh, he seems to consider the possibility that actually the real pleasure for the child may be the moment of the fourth, the moment of the loss. So if you read Lacan's commentary on those pages of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which are obviously very polemical, you get the sense that Freud got it wrong because he made the Fordenda about a reaffirmation of self-mastery. But actually, if you read carefully those pages of Freud, you can see that already in Freud there is an association of the Fordenda with the death drive, it is with the pleasure of non-mastery, okay? Uh, and then let me say something about the relationship between the death drive and the archive, and then if you like, we can come back to the death drive and tragedy, which is discussed explicitly by Freud in that passage of Beyond the Pleasure Principle. So the relationship between the death drive and the archive. Here I have to mention uh, this very important book by Jacques Derrida called Archive Fever, Mal d'Archive, which was originally conceived as a lecture that Derrida gave at the Freud Archive in London, uh, which was the house on Marsville Gardens where Freud and his daughter Anna spent the last years of his life. So, this was his second house after he moved, after he had to move from Vienna to London. And now if you go there, you, you can see, you can visit the Freudian archive. So the great point about Derrida's book was uh, a simple one. Think about the English to storing up and to store, uh, to, to store up and to store away, right? To store up means to preserve something. But to store away means to preserve it, but in the sense of uh, hiding it, in the sense of forgetting it, in the sense of erasing it. So Derrida made the point that there is no memory without forgetting, that in a sense, the attempt to preserve is intrinsically jeopardized by the forces of erasure. Also because when you preserve something, you rarely preserve everything. You make a selection, and that selection is already a form of destruction. In this way, survival becomes intricately enmeshed with loss. Consequently, the pleasure principle you know, that is the force of preservation, is uh, coexistent with the dev drive. And as Derrida put it, the archive is fundamentally an expression of the dev drive precisely because it is an attempt to reconnect with an arche, which is a beginning 
and archae, of course, is the Greek word from which archive derives in English. But this attempt to reconnect with an archive is death-driven in the sense that this archae can never be entirely recaptured. And also because this movement towards, this asymptotic movement towards an archae, in a sense, always brings us closer to the fundamental archae, which is non-existence, which is death. So this is a very uh, sketchy, you know, summary of how uh, we see the death drive playing out in Freud, in Lacan and Zizek, obviously, and Derrida. But this is a concept that, uh, as I play, as I try to show in the book, is central to other theoretical uh, schools, for example, to Deleuze and even to some new materialist, vitalist approaches, and plays a big role also in the aesthetic theory of Rancière. So my point, uh, you know, one of the big points that I try to make in the book is that there is no theory, there is no postmodernism without the death drive, even when it is disavowed. Mm-hmm. That's... I think that's an incredible um, explanation, and I think we can use that to go forward. Um, so, what I I was really interested in what you were just talking about these um, the Forda movements. So, um, you you talk about in your book the in the first chapter about kind of these opposite um, the kinetic modes, the manifestations of kinetic modes in tragedy um, as kind of mirroring how we can think about the death drive, both as almost this static restoration versus the rushing forward. And you you use Oedipus at Colonus and um, the Phenisei to talk about um, these different, these different um, movements or these different temporalities. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about the, what you call maybe an aesthetics of rushing versus the aesthetics of boredom. Um, what the difference, I guess you would ar- talk about as um, archive fever, this feverish activity versus archive fatigue and the exhaustion that comes with the archive and the repetition and the accumulation of signification. Thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk about that chapter. Um, so I talked about how uh, uh, Freud presents uh, introduces the death driving beyond the pleasure principle. And there you can really see this uh, uh, idea of rushing, okay? So the death drive, for me, is more about the movement than it is about the destination. It's not so much about reaching, you know, the inanimate state, uh but it's about this frenzy, this jouissance. So that's why, for me, Freud, in a sense, is already Lacanian, precisely because the rushing, for me, is something that gets very close to, to what Lacan calls jouissance, that is the pleasure in pain of circling around, of trying to obtain what cannot be obtained. Well, in Oedipus Oedipus Ecolonus, 
is uh, the last play that we have. The um, you know we don't know anything else about Greek tragedy after Oedipus and Colonus. So it's quite interesting that uh, uh, the history of this genre ends for us with a play which is about the death of Oedipus, which is about Oedipus finding, you know, a moment of repose in Athens and literally being archived. This is an effect of reading, which I think is quite easy to extrapolate from the text because uh, one of the basic elements of the plot is that Athens needs to acquire the body of Oedipus, needs to make it its own, needs to incorporate it within its uh, uh, within the city borders, because that will give Athens, you know, that's what the oracle says, will give Athens a prosperous future. So um, we can talk about uh, all the biopolitical or necropolitical implications of incorporating the foreigner, because, of course, Oedipus is a foreigner, within an hegemonic state. Uh, But now I want to come back to your uh, question, that is to say the Russian. Well, Oedipus knows that uh, he will die, that he will die, you know, in Athens. And he never moves. (laughs) You know, this is a play in which Oedipus remains on stage from the beginning to the end. However, this play shows an obsessive concern with the idea of speed, which, so that at the level of language, there is a kind of accelerationist motion, which is fundamentally a rushing nowhere. So this is not just wanting to die, right? Because, you know, a lot of people confuse the suicide with the death drive. But this is precisely the movement of the Todstrieb, as discussed by Freud in Beyond, Ple- Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that is a rush to annihilate the fact of existence. So I'm really interested in the paradox of a play which is so long, which never ends which is focused around, focused on a figure that is always on stage and still dramatizes, dramatizes speed. And of course, speed is, in a sense, a kind of disruption of temporality which can be seen as similar, not too dissimilar to death as well. And that's a point, in fact, that uh, Baudrillard um, mentioned in his study on America, you know, for one of the, the, quality, the qualities uh, of America that he talks about is precisely speed, and he fundamentally sees that as uh, an expression of uh, the American death drive, which we have also seen operating in these days, right? The autoimmune um, instinct that seems to be part of the American identity. But mm-hmm. now I want to go back to the Phoenicia, that is to say a play which is very similar to Oedipus and Colonus in the sense that it's about the aftermath of Oedipus. 
It's about what happens after Oedipus discovers the horrible truth about his father and his mother. So still in this play of Euripides, we have a very old Oedipus who is actually stored away by his children. In a sense, there is a kind of reenactment of the of the parricide in the Phoenicae because his children were so afraid that Oedipus may produce more trouble. They put him, they literally imprison him in the house. And the effect of this visual lack of Oedipus, Oedipus is never seen on stage because he's inside, is a kind of desire for the unattainable, the presence of Oedipus, which here manifests itself as exhaustion, or we can even say as hoarding. This is a play which is almost 2,000 line long, a play that really never ends. And what I was particularly interested in was that this play was particularly famous in antiquity, was constantly restaged. They loved it, a play which, on the other hand, for us, is so boring. It it bores us to death. But I argue that's precisely the pleasure of this place. That's precisely its aesthetic force, that the fact that it's predicated on this accumulation as a response to a lack. And this accumulation is ultimately a search for intense feeling, a feeling which can never be recaptured precisely because its alleged intensity is part of the fantasy that tragedy sets up. Yeah, I... That is such an interesting claim um, that it's it's boringness, it's it's its ability to really just bore the listener, the reader is actually exactly what makes us, you know, come towards it or feel pleasure in it. Um, you you kind of talk at the end of that chapter that um, not just this play, but tragedy, what tragedy does um as a genre is takes us towards something that we can never reach. Um, it keeps us going in pursuit of what always vanishes away. Um, and also, you know, the fact that we, we want to read tragedy with the expectation that we will have big feelings, intense feelings, that also becomes a kind of non-obtaining, right? Because uh, the abstract idea of intensity necessarily gets constantly disappointed and delayed and suspended. Mm -hmm. And you ask, I mean, at the beginning of the introduction, you ask, or you say, my goal is to suggest an alternative to reparative or redemptive tragic aesthetics by asking, what if the pleasure of tragedy is not produced, is produced not by the release, but by the lack of it, by a sense of stuckness rather than intensity as such. And I think this sensation of stuckness is, is definitely something people can relate to or people who have read these texts can relate to. There's there's that just intense feeling of like, oh my gosh, this is never going to end. This this feeling of a plot being drawn out, you say over 2,000 lines or these intense periods where at the same time in classical tragedy, it, it only lasts a day. And you think, oh my gosh, did they have more hours in a day back then? Like there's, it's these crazy, interesting temporalities that 
really make you feel this this fort da this back and forth movement the same the sensation of rushing towards nothing yeah and of course this is something that we experience now right you know we know mm-hmm. it you know we do experience acrony right it's a chronic sensation mm-hmm. of acrony or acrony of lack of time of extended duration which is really the product the product of the real, which is the virus, right? The virus, you can call it an hyper-object with, you know, with the OOO people, but it's also an expression of the Lacanian real. And uh, um, we are living, in a sense, in, uh, um, in the possibility of a new symbolic, you know, in a possibility mm-hmm. darkness even now, can be seen as a way for reinventing the social. Um, so, you know, when I started this project, you know, I really wanted to go beyond and against Aristotle and uh, against uh, this idea that at the end of a tragedy, we need to be restored, that there should be a moment when things are rosy again when there is, uh, you know, uh, the possibility of the reacquisition of an equilibrium. Precisely mm-hmm. because the very idea of a psychic uh, equilibrium is normative. It's a kind of enforcement of hierarchy, um, and it's something that cannot be denied. I think. While on the other hand, uh, for me. Tragedy is about the fantasy, the never fan, the never ending fantasy of the undoing of the subject. Thinking about ways of going beyond, you know, uh, the social as we as we all have to comply with, but also as ways of going beyond the constraints of the body. For example, I have a chapter in which I talk about. Uh, the fantasy of becoming water, the fantasy of uh, of the body without organs, and that's where I stage, I think, an encounter between Deleuze and psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis showing that even the Deleuzean vitalistic model of the body without organs or of the becoming water is actually constantly haunted by the undulation of water, which is a kind of fort da in its own right. Yeah, that I I was just about to bring up that chapter, actually, um, or not that chapter, that entire section of the book, because um, what you're talking about, you you just bring up the body, um, and the title of your text is Archive Feelings, and in you talk about, um, I'm looking at the ch- introduction right now, where you say, um, Quote, acceleration, hoarding, vertiginous suspension, breathless looping, affective bulimia or binge eating, serial cutting, trying to enter or fold in upon oneself, autoimmune inflation, the orgasm as an unfinished, non-teleological pleasure. These are the intimations of aesthetic experiences that I use to articulate my model of anti-catharsis. And those are, end quote, those are what you use to um, discuss archive feelings. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how what you brought up earlier, the idea of post-critique or um, affective, intimate 
reading, how that brings you into this idea of archive feelings, as well as um, your anti-cathartic reading of tragedy, which goes against a lot of, um, you know, traditional or what, like what, how I learned about tragedy as like this cathartic mode is what I'm watching this to let all my feelings out. Um, if you could just say something about how you're rethinking tragedy in relation to the body as well. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, my attempt to, uh, complicate the dichotomy between reparative and paranoid reading also as a counterpart in an attempt to uh, rethink and complicate the dichotomy between affect and psychoanalysis. Because as we know, uh, affect was conceptualized as a way to react against psychoanalytic uh, criticism. Um, but uh, what I try to show in the book is that, uh, you know, feeling, the feeling that emerges through formal texture uh, is often, can often be connected with dynamics that we're familiar with from psychoanalysis. So that's why, for me, the aesthetics of tragedy is about what I call death-driven feelings or death-driven affect. That is to say, forms of feeling which are materialized in poetic form and that can be seen all as expressions of this very broad concept that we call death-drive. And in fact, you know, the theoretical eclecticism that I choose in the book is also an attempt to, to show, you know, the wide spectrum of sensations and feelings covered by the very idea of, of the death drive. So talking about the body, well, um, there is a chapter in which, as I, as I discussed before, I talk about the body without organs. Um, in particular by referring to Philoctetes and Ecuba, two plays in which, you know, the uh, reaffirmation of the symbolic at the very end of the play is uh, uh, contested by an impulse to join, you know, the watery flaw, literally, with Philoctetes wanting to embrace the nymphs of the sea and Ecuba throwing herself into the sea. But there is also another chapter in which I talk about um, sexual pleasure. And that is probably the most risque chapter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, in a sense, I start there with Aristotle because uh, the word catharsis is not used by Aristotle just in the poetics, as we all know, but it's also used in some of his biological works to uh, indicate both menstruation and ejaculation. So ejaculation and menstruation are seen as forms of bodily release. So the kind of uh, interpretive move that uh, I adopt in that chapter is to look 
at moments in the finales of some famous plays like Oedipus the King, Antigone, and Agamemnon, where gushing, gushing of blood has a strong sexual overtone. And I want to say that this is something that was already noticed by previous interpreters. So that there is a, sex, a strongly sexualized element there. So what I try to do is to show that uh, uh, that ejaculatory uh, iconism actually does not turn into catharsis, does not turn into release, but it actually dramatizes the impossibility of release that is essential, that is intrinsic to sexual pleasure as such. So these are moments in the formal texture of the play in which the apparent instantaneity of the sexual pleasure, of the orgasm, is contradicted by a kind of temporal duration produced at the level of form, with a kind of viscous form, and that's precisely how anti-catharsis emerges, not as anti-orgasmic, but as a manifestation of the fact that the orgasm can never be entirely separated from a post-orgasmic intoxication, from the kind of tristesse that we associate with its aftermath. And here, I look at Nancy's and uh, his theorization of uh, uh, the orgasm as Jewier, as something that is never a state. Thank you so much for that wonderful answer. And I have one, um, one more question on the book before we get to our last um, question of the interview, which, um, which is, um, it's a little, it's a little more of a broad question. And, I want to ask what you think about how Greek tragedy as kind of this archive for for culture today um, and how we, I think we stretch back towards it. I mean, it's been, I've read Greek plays since I was in high school on syllabi um, up until my senior year of my undergraduate degree. I was, I've been reading these and we, we keep them as an archive to store up, you, as you say in the introduction and earlier in the interview. I'm wondering how, what do you think causes or um, what do you think drives us, to use a more Freudian term, towards this um, creation of Greek tragedy as an archive for us to look towards? Um, and how are we implicated in this, in these death-driven aesthetics, um, maybe as a literary society today. Yeah, I think that, for example, you know, when I teach tragedy um, to my undergraduates, they are interested in these texts as mythological stories because, uh, you know, these are the most important sources that we have on Antigone, on Medea, and so forth. And uh, I make, in, in the book, I make the point that this relation between tragedy and mythology and myth is also a kind of archival, death-driven 
relation. Because in a sense, what tragedy tried to do is not too different from what drives my undergraduates towards this step. Tragedy tried, in a sense, to capture or recapture myth. You know, one of the reasons, you know, that uh, certain stories are played and replayed so that we have three different versions of uh, the libation bearers, right? Uh, so the Oresteia was constantly re-staged, uh, reconceived, rewritten by Greek playwrights is precisely that uh, myth can never be reconstructed. That is precisely the Deridian event. It's mm-hmm. precisely what uh, uh, Derrida calls, uh, uh, I mean, we can apply to mythology, to the event of mythology, is definition of, of uh, life. I think at a certain point he says that life is the origin, the unrepresentable origin of representation. So, uh, so in the book, I say that tragedy is uh, affected by and uh, sort of uh, fed by a traumatic compulsion. That is to say, an attempt to recapture myth. You know, to in a sense record it. But actually, when they try, when the playwrights try to record it, they create myth. And that's a quintessentially archival uh, component. So, um, uh, and obviously, when we go back to tragedy, we also reenact this dynamic. And another thing that I hope the book uh, does is to make people more confident that it's okay not to feel restored and and. <laughs> of one of these plays, and actually that's the point. And uh, confronting our own death drive, of which we find, you know, daily manifestations in the news, is one of the reasons that actually we keep going back to this genre. That's such an interesting point you make about <laughs> it's okay to not feel, like, relieved at the end of a text. Um, I think there are many times when I have read um, a Greek tragedy and, and kind of just sat with it and been like, okay, how am I supposed to feel now? Um, and I think, I think this anti-catharsis model that you're bringing up really helps to explain that sensation. Um, oh, were you going to say something? No, no, please go ahead, Brett. Bre- oh, I was just oh. going to go on to, um, kind of a, a last question that, um, you might not totally have an answer to yet, but um, we like to ask as our final send-off question, um, what are you working on now? What's what's on your mind? What are you thinking of? Um, where do you see yourself going in the future? Even though, you know, this was just published, so there's you might not have something right down the pipeline next, but... Well, actually, I am finishing another book. <laughs> okay, great. Then, uh, Can you give us any hints about it? <laughs> sure. This is called, uh, it's on politics and radical formalism. So mm-hmm. it's again an attempt to conceptualize radical formalism as uh, a, an instrument for situating political resistance, even in texts like those of Aristophanes, that seem to be permeated by a conservative agenda. So uh, this is a reading, again, of four plays. 
one of which is Lysistrata, very famous play. So uh, in Lysistrata, I try to stage an encounter between Aristophanic form and uh, the scholarship on the refugees and uh, biopolitics and necropolitics in the discourse on the so-called refugee crisis. I also have a chapter on a play called The Women at the Tismophoria, um, which has always been seen as about transvestitism. And on the other hand, I connect this play with trans theory and in particular with uh, what I call trans form. That is to say how trans with the asterisk can also be seen as a formal phenomenon. And then in the last chapter, then there is also a chapter on frogs and birds, which is more about politics and animal studies. But the last chapter, which is the most experimental, is to try to look at the style, at the form of some famous critical theorist and connect it with the pyrotechnic form of Aristophanes. So those four uh, critical theorists are Ranciere, Deleuze, Achille Membe, and Jack Alberstam. So in a sense, uh, this is a chapter on them and Aristophanes together. So this, I'm finishing this book, then I also am working on an edited volume called Queer Euripides, which is uh, similar to the um, Queer Shakespeare, the companion, the queer companion to mm-hmm. Shakespeare, which was published a few years ago. So I found 19 people willing to provide, you know, a, a reinvention of the interpretation of Euripides in light of different trends of queer theory. And then I also have another book on the Arche and l'Avenir, that is to say a kind of uh, disruption of temporality and in particular the concept of lateness in the late Derrida. So this is what I'm working on. So, and in a sense, archive feelings has provided a lot of further ideas. So these are projects that I conceptualize also as spin-offs of archive feelings. Well, those sound great. Um, I definitely will want to read that first book you just mentioned. Um, and we can, I hope to have you back and we can talk about it for a new episode. Yes. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Um, once again, this was Mario Teller with, we are talking about his new book, Archive Feelings, out from the Ohio State University Press. Um, Mario, thank you for talking with us. Thank and you so much, Brit. This was wonderful. Thank you for your amazing questions. Thank you. Yeah, and I hope we get to talk to you again. Um, we will. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the um, Literary Studies New Book Network channel. Um, until next time, hope to hear or hope to have you listen to us again. Thank you. <laughs>